Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. Brian Zisk is a gem. He's our guest in today's episode. I think I met him initially through SF Music Tech, but somewhere before that even, and run into him all the time at digital music and music events. He has a long and fabulous history with the internet and internet and music, and will be sharing a lot of that history in today's podcast. And in 93, I saw the internet and I said, this is going to change everything. I saw someone who's still a friend who's one of the most brilliant people I know, but would never get covered, uh, you know, would never be in the newspaper or the magazine. I mean, maybe once in a while. But he had a website, and I saw this is, you have the ability to publish whatever you want on an international level to anyone who has the means of, of seeing it and wants to see it. And so for me, that was so fascinating that I pretty much said, I'm going to learn this, and very quickly... Uh, you know, started putting up web pages. I had, I believe, a little bit before this started San Francisco, which was a week a weekly events listing in San Francisco. I figured, oh, I'm coming to San Francisco. How do I get integrated with the community? I want to help the people who are who who have who throw events and the people who are performing at the events, musicians or other types of events. I want to help the venues. And it became a really interesting way to meet tons of San Francisco folks. But that was on the well and through email. And then the web happened. But some people may not know what the well is, was, is, is. It's definitely still around. The well is now, uh, it's an online conferencing system that's been around since the mid-80s that was very, very influential because... Back before people generally had computers or computers on the net, it was one of the first and most influential conferencing systems where you would go and post something in text and then other people would respond to it. And it was very influential because the folks who started it basically invited all of their press friends and there were, it was a writer community. It was, uh, it became very, very influential to this sort of way where you'd be on it and you would never know who would be participating in the conversations. In some cases you would, in some cases you wouldn't. And then it started uh, helping grow musician communities. So a lot of the Grateful Dead folks who had this initial, you know, had a, a, a international network, but would come together online and everybody would would communicate there. I remember there was a conversation on Keezy versus Leary, which is kind of a esoteric <laughs> topic. Uh, and and, and then, that we won't stop anybody to explain here either, because that would be a whole nother Well, whole what nother I podcast. will say is what was interesting is soon after the topic started, Tim Leary, who was on the well, but people didn't realize popped on in. And then a few days later, Ken Keezy, who was then just joining the well, popped on in. So you kind of, it's kind of like how, you know, I'll be at South by and I'll start thinking about Gigi and then you'll appear. It was one of those (laughs) weird online things where a topic would pop up. And if the experts weren't already there, they would come and and, and join. So it's much more influential system 
uh, than what I'm, I'm ex- than I was. Well, able it's a little to- bit what Quora's <laughs> attempted to be as well in a modern era, where they originally, when Quora started up, you would literally come in sure. and that you'd, you'd wanted to say something about Dana Boyd, and then Dana Boyd would say something sure. about herself four hours later. So attempting yeah. to, to kind of recreate that ecosystem. Sure, sure. The only difference I'll say is that at that point, there really weren't many other places to go. Now, Quora, which is spectacular, even it is having problems. I mean, I think most people don't even know what Quora is. When you have hundreds of millions of websites, how do you break through? Which is strangely similar to the issues that there are with music at this point. Now that everybody, yeah, we'll we'll get to that later. We'll come back to that. So, from coming into San Francisco and creating this um, listing of events, how did how did your your own innovation move from there? So then, what happened is, uh, you know, I saw the web and I already had a mailing list. So I said, "Oh, great! I'll put this." I I already had a a weekly uh, piece of content. I said, "I'll put this on the internet," and it was great because as everybody was starting to get on the internet, I would be the guy who was there. I remember there used to be sites about the cool sites that had been added to the web that day, and they would list like the three of them. It was very directed towards what whatever was there. So I started doing various uh, projects for a lot of the innovators who had built computing, actually uh, built personal computing back in the 1980s because they all had businesses and projects and were very, very deep into what they were doing, but they hadn't learned, you know, the internet. So I was the guy who had put them all online and I did a couple of various startups with various levels of success, a lot of things that no one had ever done on the web before, like voting and yada yada and then a friend came to me and said we're we're such music lovers why don't we because the laws are changing to make it legal to start serving music on the net uh this was uh the dmca and dmca digital millennium copyright act yes And, and that allowed among a number of other things you to legally broadcast internet radio similar to how you can legally broadcast terrestrial radio uh, if you have a license. You, if you have a license to broadcast, you're allowed to do it on the internet. You don't even need a license to broadcast. What what you do need are licenses to the music that you do broadcast. You would have previously had to get every single performance right licensed individually. However. The DMCA allowed you to do that as a class, which would eventually turn to be administered by Sound Exchange, which was being spun out of the RIAA right at that point. All of a sudden, it became legal to do while only obtaining, I believe it was four licenses, whereas a month before or a day before, you would have had to get every master license that you wanted to play, which would would have been impossible at the time. I believe the law actually went into effect October 29th, and then we launched October 31st as the Greenwich Internet Radio, and had uh, all of the Greenwich artificial intelligence DJ who would uh, determine what was being played, and that is notable more because what we found are that people don't really want to be served music by algorithm, or at least not explicitly. They want someone to recommend the music for them. 
So like the traditional DJs on the radio served a very big purpose, you know, getting the fans. Uh, they would have fans and then people would end up liking that music more because they had the affinity with the DJs. So what we did by having this artificial intelligence DJ, she would actually get fan mail from our folks because she had this persona as if she were a cartoon character. But in fact, we would benefit from the fact that we could have 150 stations and the algorithms would determine what was played. It, it, it maps, interestingly enough, to something like Pandora. Yeah, I was going to think you kind of pre-Music Genome Project, the Music Genome Project. Right, and what's really interesting there is that when you get your music from Pandora, yes, there's the human element from the Genome Project. It's really done by algorithm, but because there's such a big deal made about the human input, it convinces people that they should have the affinity with those folks and like the music more than if it had just been an algorithm. Well, plus they so, have a whole bunch of musicology PhDs in there that are also helping sort of move the dial as well. Right. And honestly, the, the, for, for me, it's like you get some of these other services and they talk about having, what, 12 million tracks or something. And you don't see Pandora saying that because my belief is they just take the – 70%, they take the top 30% of, you know, the music that their folks rate, and then the rest of the stuff, they don't even play. So, of course, you're going to like it better if you kind of have this group filtering as to what's what's going to be better. But yes, it was very much like Pandora with with certain differences around not being able to create channels around artists, around individual songs. Another huge difference was that there were so many fewer people on the internet that we'd get up to a couple hundred people listening at a time, which was pretty good for the time, but sure hard to figure out how to make money on. And considering that we had expenses for, for using the music, we were going to have to figure something out relatively quickly. We were lucky enough that because our aim had been to help musicians get their music out and, and, and distributed and musicians would absolutely love it because, you know, they were getting played on terrestrial radio and they'd go listen to a channel and it would be like, you know, their song and then the Rolling Stones. And then, you know, <laughs> and, and so people really, really loved it. Um, but it wasn't but, enough to make a living on it this time. It wasn't enough to make a living, well, for anybody. You know, I can't imagine that music, any musicians were seeing uh, real money off of it at that point. And honestly, you know, if 200 people listen to a song on the radio, you can't expect more than a couple bucks. So, yes, there was no money in it at that point. So we were lucky enough that because it was kind of a frothy Internet time, we were lucky enough to be bought then by CMGI. They were buying or investing in a hundred plus different startups, everything from Alta Vista to Akamai to a lot of the the core parts of the net. But then we got bought, merged together, and then shut down. Now, when did SF Music Tech start? Uh, I teamed with a couple other folks to start the Future of Music Coalition. Uh, that was with Jenny Toomey and Kristen Thompson and Walter and Michael. But what happened is we started producing the uh, Future of Music Policy Summits, 
which were really interesting because at first they tried to ignore us. Then they, you know, I mean, it was it was funny. But you know, we ended up getting folks like Warren Hatch out to the first event. Uh, at which point, everyone realized that they couldn't really ignore us. And then, as it moved forward on an annual basis, there was an election coming up, and that was the first Obama election. And everybody who was in D.C. was like, "No, we're not going to be able to get senators or Congress people out." Because all anyone's going to be able to do is focus on the election. So we're going to take a year off. And it provided a time of introspection for me because it's a phenomenal event, but it's exceptionally strong around getting the head of the copyright office and getting senators and Congress people and folks out about legislation and how to have laws passed that really move the situation forward productively for musicians and for fans and for everybody. But laws don't don't change so quickly. So we were like eight years into the Future Music Coalition, and it was like, what is it that is really of interest to me? Am I interested in potential laws that probably won't happen? Am I interested in, I mean, how do we clean up this licensing mess? And I, I still don't know the answer, even though laws still haven't changed, you know, eight years after, you know, Obama got elected, seven years after. So we use that as an opportunity to say, you know, what we're most interested in is who are the musicians, the entrepreneurs, the developers, who are doing new innovative things, you know, where they're not just like saying, how do we get the law changed, where they're actually out there working within the constraints that exist to do interesting things. So how did you get SF Music Tech started and what has really come from all this marvelous time? I think folks like folks would come to the Bay Area and they'd, they'd be like 400 people they'd want to meet with, and they'd be able to arrange appointments with, with three. And when you have something that has such a strong critical mass that everybody comes out to the same place at the same time, it becomes really easy or much easier uh, to move things forward. We just booked a venue. I helped someone else with another show just to see how it worked, and that worked out well. So we decided to do the first summit, and I forget how many folks we had, 400, 600. You know, we now get substantially more than that. We started doing them relatively often. We were doing them mostly twice a year. Now we're doing them once a year just because it's too much work to do multiple times a year. It's just one of those things that once I did the first one, it almost took a life of its own because people uh, get so much out of it that they'll – you know, we have people flying in from Korea and Indonesia and, and, and all around the world because once you start going through the list of people who are coming and you look through and there's 800 people who you're like, oh, my God, this is like these are all people who I should be, you know, they're my peers who I should be interacting with. You know, the folks who are most interested around how to really move these issues forward in a way that benefits everybody. You know, folks see the 800 other people are like, I have to be there. So it's really much more about the the interesting people trying to move the situation forward productively who all come together, which make it, you know, such a great event. You really have been in the catbird seat then of watching major innovations happen, especially mm -hmm. not just over the past few years, but for a while. Sure. What really, I mean, innovation is such a, a quirky word because, right. I mean, in many ways it captures change, it captures right. disruption, et cetera. Sure. But what do you see that really drives innovation in music? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at innovation. And I, I think I tend to focus on it 
differently than a lot of people because there's technological innovation and because of where we are there's there's so much of that you know there's like Don Tillman who's out there building his new you know his new integrated uh, foot pedals you know his new integrated uh, effects boards there's folks doing like really really great things what i tend to focus on innovation wise is more around new ways of doing things and new business models. Traditionally, there were a lot of issues with record companies, which were, you know, they did a lot of good things. They did some things that weren't as good, but they were, they would, were very good at getting between the artist and their fans with multiple layers. You'd have the, the artist, you'd have the, the label, you'd have the distributor, you'd have the record store, you'd have the fans. Now that things are digital, you would end up thing, like with things like, Bandcamp or things like Beat Stars or things where you can have people create music either solely or jointly and have it flow through the system and reach their fans in a way where they'll get paid without all of these layers. So that's why to me, something like Bandcamp, even though it's still small compared to the entire music industry, but they've distributed over a hundred million dollars to independent musicians at this point through the sale of their music in a way where folks tend to pay even more. Bandcamp has a recommended price or a base price. And on average, people end up paying musicians even more than they're asking for. Something where instead of 90% of the income gets funneled to the side and the musicians don't get it, 90%, I think it may even be more, but I don't want to misquote, of the money goes directly to the artist through Bandcamp. You know, that to me are the type of innovations that really help because in many ways it's bad that, you know, no longer are there these huge advances and companies that help the artists massively blow up, but, but a much fewer number, you, you know, but there are also good things about about what the net has done, and it's it's allowed musicians and their fans to connect directly, and that to me is the sort of innovation that I find to be most interesting, despite the fact that what Bandcamp is doing is not like a major new technological invention. It still came through with the right ethos and way of being to get the artists interested enough to put their stuff up and to get the uh, music fans interested enough to spend their money there. So then the drivers for innovation in music are kind of going around the embedded models, or is it that we have new technologies that are available that are launching these? I mean, some of these sound like basic questions, but right. you know, well, why well, now? Things, things changed. And when, you know, digital came along and all of a sudden we didn't have to have physical plastic discs every time we wanted to play something, that precipitated the change. And so then it became how do we work with these digital transmissions in a way to build a new ecosystem? Because we always had it. We had an ecosystem for 50 years which is basically you sign your rights away, you get money to make a recording, you make the recording. It was a very convoluted process which limited the amount of people who could actually do it. And then, you know, we started, I don't know when, I'd say in the 1990s, you know, 
All of a sudden, certain innovations started happening that made it more within reach. Individuals could afford to press a thousand CDs. You know, people could get into recording studios less expensively. But that really underwent a much bigger change when all of a sudden you didn't even need to press a thousand CDs. It was like, I remember those days and you'd have so many people who would, you know, make their first album and then three years later they'd still have 500 CDs in the garage after giving away 400 of them and they'd feel discouraged because they weren't really making any money. Now it's interesting because because these limitations on production have disappeared or really gotten uh, much lower barriers to entry, you have so many more folks creating music and making videos and doing all of these things than, than ever before. You know, I'll have my 13-year-old daughter is creating content for the web at this point. And, you know, the sort of videos that she creates, when I was growing up, you couldn't do with a million dollars worth of equipment. And she's doing this just on her phone. So all of a sudden, while that's great in how it enables way more people to create music and or other media, it's also tough because there's not the limited number of folks who you have to choose from. It's not like, okay, the only place I can get my music is the radio and there's one station in town and it plays the same 20 songs over and over. Now my daughter's got thousands of friends and they're creating media and they're watching each other's media and they almost never watch TV, you know, or I don't think they ever listen to the radio. And it's really interesting because what used to drive popularity even more i think than pure talent because we all know there can be amazing pure talent that doesn't get recognized was the fact that you would get repetition you know and you would get saturation and 40 percent of the country would watch johnny carson 40 percent of who is awake and they would see the same act and then they would hear it on the radio over and over and over and a lot of times there will be a song you don't even take notice of, but by the 20th time you've heard it, you're singing along to it on the internet because there's so much more music and other content being created, it becomes much harder to get people to see the same thing over and over in a way where they realize or it gets embedded enough that it becomes their, their favorite uh, piece of music. At the same time, your daughter is seeing a completely different world of music than yes. you are. Yes. Which has been the case for a long time, but not necessarily for the same reasons. I mean, sure. you might listen previously to a different radio station, but not that you have a completely different mode of consuming content. That's correct. I mean, we, we did go through different modes as I was growing up. I mean, first I had, you, you know, I, I, I bought some albums and then, oh my God, look how much cooler these eight tracks are. Well, except when they switch track, you know, and then uh, I, you know, I bring eight tracks to my class because my students have never heard what the heck. I actually bring in. Bring, I don't have to bring in LPs now, of course, because those are yes. burgeoning. But bring for laughs, bring a rotary phone one day. Uh, I brought 78s and showed them why an album is an album. So so things were always changing and it was all, and then cassette tapes came and. You know, and then and then when CDs came, it was interesting because 
that was an agreed upon enough format that people thought it was going to be a platform for the ages, and then everybody rebought their their albums again on CDs. That was a tough one because then when new formats came after that, people didn't really have the wait. Wait a minute, you, you just had us rebuy everything for 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 CD. Now you want us to buy another format? Or when they came out with those SA CDs, which were pretty cool, they were like a CD on one side and a DVD on the other side, and I don't think anyone even remembers them. And 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 so so. It became tough because people thought they were buying the song, but then it turned out they were really buying that single carrier on the, for the song, and it would always become rough. I mean, you remember back in the day, whatever your favorite album was, you would play it out until it would skip, and you couldn't listen anymore. Or for um, cassette tape stretch. <laughs> yes, and you know, and now people have digital music and it gets overwritten or they drop the service or it gets pulled from a service or I want to, I mean, I'm still dying to see lemonade, but in reality I haven't had the time where I'm like, okay, I'm going to block out this hour and pay my 18 bucks. You, you know, because it's now changed into something where there are these really cool services, you know, ranging from Spotify to Apple music to whatever, there's dozens of them probably five that, you know, are used by 99%, but clearly there are so many of them. Now that I have access to whatever music it is, whatever I want at any time, except for a small body of work, which isn't on these services, turns out often that I can find music I love without having to find any particular piece of music that I want right then. And people have very different listening habits. So, for instance, you know, with the Greenwich Internet Radio, I love that because like Pandora, you click a button and you get you listen to music until you want to listen to something else. A lot of other folks, especially folks who are really so involved that they're building these services, they want to hear something specific right now and it's all about on demand. Can I choose this song? Can I choose that song? Can I choose another song? For me, for whatever reason, as long as I can hear one of the things that I really would like to hear, or as long as I'm listening to something that I'm really enjoying, I don't feel the need to listen to anything in particular at that particular moment. But it's what we see are there are a lot of different people who listen in a lot of different ways, but for the listener, it's a clearly better situation now that they can hear almost anything they want almost anywhere at almost any time, as opposed to, I really want to play this amazing song for you, but we're out at a bar or wherever we are, and the disc is back at my house. So, so <laughs> and we, now instead you can just Shazam whatever you're listening to at the bar, capture it and take it home with you. That is correct. So you've seen circles or cycles, I should say, of yes. transformation here. Along this road, what has been your biggest surprise? Either I, that, either that worked or didn't work, or you didn't expect. Or my biggest surprise, I think, is in how acrimonious it appears to be 
for me, it, it's a bit of a surprise that people value music so much. They value what musicians bring and musicians, you know, find, need to find a way to get compensated because the traditional method has gone away and there's new methods. But in reality, they're they're um, they're evolving. So you're not making as much money as you were when you could afford to have like the sort of business team and marketing team around you. So it's just it's just really interesting to me that we haven't been able to find these ways to make more of the parties happy. It just seems like we're in this crabby cycle where people feel like the best way we can get ahead is to be crabby towards everybody. I don't really know, and I don't even really know what I'm saying, but it seemed to me like we might, like the ecosystem might have found a better way to get along as opposed to have it be, you know, the songwriters or, you know, hating YouTube or hating Spotify or, you know, the master folks are still having problems because the music's, you know, their, their, their payments are still flowing through the labels. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's something that you see along the way, you know, like what I, I tried to do with a blockchain based project where basically, you know, you determine the rights and then when someone would buy a song, everyone would get paid immediately. It's amazing to me that, you know, royalties are still so unclear. It's amazing to me that the big labels kind of didn't move forward so well. They were in the catbird seat, but now you end up with folks like, you know, a lot of the technology companies like Google and YouTube serving more music than pretty much anybody, um, you know, in, in, in mostly in ways where they're uncompensated or undercompensated, you know, and, and, and it's just one of these interesting things that we're still in a lot more flux. I think that's my biggest surprise is that when I got into it in 98 on a very in-depth way, that it wouldn't all be sorted out by like 2004, you know, and here, here we are in 2016 and on the mass adoption side, I mean, clearly so many more people are listening to music online than they were back then and so many fewer people are buying CDs. So on that level, things have changed, but it still hasn't sorted out what the long-term ecosystem is going to look like. And it's really interesting because so much of it has been built on, you know, the laws, many of which have been in place since the early 20th century, but we've built this kind of advanced, evolved ecosystem on that. And, you know, if all of a sudden there's some uh, major copyright reform, the first thing it will do is break down the system that popped up. So it really seemed like we were going to have this one trough where there was like a trough of misunderstanding and then we come out the other side growing revenue in a, in a, in a massive way again. And 
you know, I think we kind of crossed the first trough, but it seems like we may be going back into another one. It's a really tough situation, and it's not like it's found this equilibrium that works for everybody or even a good good percentage of people at this point. And with the economy, in my belief, about to tank again, mostly because we have these eight-year cycles and we've had about seven good years in a row. Now, I mean, I'm not doom and gloom. It will come back again. But if you have an industry that like has been suffering through a lot of issues and all of a sudden we hit a even slower patch, that's, I mean, I, I didn't think it was going to take, you know, 30 years to sort this out. And we're more than halfway there. And we haven't made uh, enough progress at all. Well, let's let's look beyond rights, the rights we could, again, talk readily for an hour on that. Of course. What are the next new innovations that are coming up the pike or that need to come up the pike? What, sure. What other than rights innovations and rights re- renegotiating rights really are we looking to in the in the near term and longer term future? Well, there's two things, and I'm going to talk about rights for one, about four seconds more, and then I'm going to switch to some other things. Not even talking about changing uh, laws around rights, there needs to be better, more transparent ways to track and pay appropriately on the rights. So that's actually something a lot of people have been working on and something that I think we are going to have some changes, uh, improvements technologically soon to where pretty much any piece of work any piece of music that you want to figure out who should be paid on it, you can do that. That's a very basic thing. When people want to use music, they should at least figure out, be able to figure out who to go and license it from, which is a much harder thing uh, now than most people realize. That said, away from rights, one of the most important innovations by far, it's one of these sort of like, it's a freight train, it's coming, you don't even have to do anything is the fact that people are getting better and better bandwidth to their homes. So it used to be, you know, oh, I can't really listen to Pandora because it keeps dropping out. And as the Internet gets better and better across the world, we're going to have better and better access to music. We're going to be able to have it in, whether it's higher resolution, uh, so it sounds better, or one of these codecs that is actually gets developed that is smaller for the existing net, you know, but then works even better on, 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 the, on the stronger net. The, the improvement of the Internet is going to allow, you know, it's not like in the old days where people would like, you know, they'd record their part and they'd upload it and then the next day the other guy would be able to hear it. He could record, over, you know, something else, you know, with things like, uh, clip or things like band lab or, you know, basically you can record a thought or a master and basically share it with the world almost instantaneously. I think the, the distance collaboration on music is going to be vastly improved. There are finally some folks who are, uh, working on some real time, uh, distance collaboration, like where people play together remotely. That's, oh, do, you, do you have examples to share on that? was an interesting one. I'm drawing a blank for a second. They're out of Nashville, and I'm drawing a blank on their 
on their name. I met them last year at the summit and, and they had a pretty interesting thing. And I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on them. No, that's okay. Uh, I've run into quite a few of them myself and each of them right. seems to bubble up for a while right. and then never get beyond a bubble up phase where they have a few people using it, but not really getting beyond the pilot stage. Right. So, but that's also why as we move forward with the advances in the net, it'll help a little more. I do know, for instance, the collaborative stuff where someone records and then someone, other people pop on and record with them was something that never really caught on for a while. And I know my wife loves now, uh, she uh, uses a, a company called BandLab, um, which is pretty interesting. And so other people will record a track and she can record over it or she can record a track and then, you know, the different musicians will work with her someone could say okay well i'm gonna lose this bass this this bass performer and i'm gonna record over it here and it's pretty interesting to see how tracks evolve over time of course to be part of that system they they have to give up certain right you know allow other people to record over and not have full permission of you know of you know over the final track or yada yada that is much stronger than than anything i saw a couple years ago and, uh, you know, the real-time stuff may get better as well. I was a big skeptic for a long time, but I've learned I can be a skeptic. You know, I can be 100% right in the under 10-year time frame, and then we get a little more than that, and, you know, I'm, I'm totally wrong. So <laughs> That's the challenge of doing this for a while is that you're evidence strong <laughs> as time goes by. Yeah. I have I have a lot of things that I went on uh, on public record for you know eight ten fifteen years ago that have right. now come back to hunt me. So looking forward again, so you're involved with a lot of companies directly indirectly. What are two or three companies that are changing music that are that you're not directly attached to that you're really intrigued or excited about? To me, Bandcamp is by far one of the most interesting ones because while everybody is saying people aren't buying music anymore, they buy more and more music there. So that's a really interesting one for me. I tend to focus on really, really early ones. So, you know, I mean, I'm not involved with Clip at the moment, though I may become involved with them, but I, I love it. It's a really easy way to record anything online and share links instantly. We could be doing this interview and then, boom, we've got a link we can share with everybody instantly. It's like imager for music. Uh, I also mentioned Don Tillman's one about reinventing uh, audio effects, first for keyboards, then eventually for guitar. I tend to go really early. On a bigger level, I mean, all the companies are doing interesting things. I mean, the, the big ones we mentioned, I mean, everything from YouTube to Spotify and all that, I mean, a decade, decade and a half ago, they didn't exist. You know, we're talking about a pretty short period of time in which so, so much stuff is being ha is, is happening. There are hundreds of interesting companies at this point. And you have the wonderful position of, with all of your work and SF Music Tech to be able to work with them all, which is massively cool. Luckily, luckily, and especially through our startup competitions. I mean, everybody applies to those. We see so many more uh, music learning tools. You know, I know my daughter loves one now called Music Quest that I was invited to invest in and did not. So I'm not involved with them, but Music Quest, great, great company. Cordify. There, there are a number of folks out there who are doing, you know, one piano or, or um, 
folks like Joy Tunes that help people learn how to play piano. I mean, there's so much going on on the net right now that helps people figure out how to make music or, you know, Sam Gribben's got a company called Melodics that teaches people how to, how to make music, you know, using Ableton and, you know, I mean, even just stuff like Ableton is like, it's amazing what people are able to do online uh, now that they weren't able to do before. So there, there's really just so much, but yes, through the summit and the startup competitions and, you know, helping out, you know, with elevator pitches at places like South by Southwest, I'm really lucky to be able to see so many different interesting startups. What might be some last thoughts you'd want to leave us with? At this point, especially if you're a musician, you really have to try a lot of things. You have to get on board with things as they're just growing because whether it's music or business or life, if all of a sudden something takes off and you can be part of it or all of a sudden they're driving tons and tons of traffic and they can drive it to you it's really good both for your you know your your brand your identity and your ability to get your music out to tons and tons of people to build a fan base in a way where they're going to support you so that's really if i have to say anything it's don't look at everything and go oh well i'm gonna figure out the winner and then hop on hop onto things so when the winner is determined, you are already uh, deeply involved. And thank you for being deeply involved in all this, and thank you very much for joining us today. We will keep an eye out for continuing adventures for SF Music Tech and all the other great things you're up to, and thank you for joining us. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in Innovating Music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.